Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I think you're full of I think I'm full of Shit, I was so full of Yeah, I was so full of I think I'm full of I think you're full of I think you're full of Shit And welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. It's a board game po- podcast about strangely enough board games i'm here nailed it i'm here with my great friend mark how are you today mark i'm very well walker how are you good we are going to talk about the game that we reviewed last year then we're going to talk about games we played this week we're going to talk about some news what happened in the last four days mark and then we're going to talk about our topic which this week is false expectations pre-judging a game or a game experience i guess for example, one might have the false expectation that I had properly prepared for this episode. For example, by making a note of what game we should discuss during the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. And that would be a false expectation because I completely forgot. Another expectation would be just because we have a podcast, we know what we're talking about. Also a false well, f- fortunately, we kind of advertise that we're completely clueless in the title of the podcast. Well, so. that, that's just coverage, right? Yes. So here in Canada, we have, no, here in Ontario, we have what we call Family Day. Yes, this is an English Canada thing. In Quebec, we didn't have Family Day. So practically the whole province shuts down, which is a nice thing. You're supposed to spend time with your family and do family type things. That sounds terrible. It it usually is. I instead spent time with my cardboard family. I just had a day of gaming at my place. Yeah, I I popped in to say make sure I got to say hello to everyone. In like... furtherance of my New Year's resolution to travel less and host more, I had a whole bunch of people came over. I had American fun-sized candy bars, which to me is the very apex of hospitality. Games being played across the entire floor. It was a it was a nice sight to see. So one year ago, Mark, we played a game called Battle for Rakugan. Ah, yes. I remember this game. Do tell. I'm sure you've got a bunch written down there. No, But all truth be told, all the sides have this chip set that you, you put out all these hidden orders. And it, I believe I have not played it again, unfortunately. And that's not because I don't want to play it again. I still have fond memories of all our games of Battle of Rakugan. I still think it's a fantastic system. I still think it's a gem that went broadly misseen across the board and i think more people should give it a try i agree that it is criminally underappreciated because i see a lot of people spending a lot of time with vastly inferior albeit similar games it has been described by many people as a game of thrones in 75 to 90 minutes and that i think is reasonably accurate because it's got the hidden order system down pat 
and there's a lot of very interesting bluff and subtlety involved, and the, as you say, the tile mix is very, very well handled, and it leads to a subtle but significant degree of asymmetry. I liked everything about it. The only reason why I got rid of the game and why I couldn't, I didn't think that it really came together was I felt that the scoring was a little too coarse and blunt, and it just led to what is known in wargaming circles as the end-of-the-world problem. When all you have is terminal scoring, defense flies out the window, and you start engaging in, quite frankly, rather bizarre last-turn moves. Also, given that it is all about that final turn, and it's in a five-round game, start player can become very, very strange. Being the last player in the last round is very, very advantageous, and ultimately, it was those things that let it fall apart. It was one of those games that was less than the sum of its parts, as far as I'm concerned, and really undone by the final victory conditions. But past that, honestly, very clever, very minimalistic, very, very, very good. And as far as troops on a map games go, you can do a lot worse than Battle for Rakugan. True, and because of the hidden order thing, it worked great at large player numbers, I think. Absolutely. That segues a little bit into the games we played this week, Mark. You talked about turn order. And I felt as though that our game of Trois the other night really showed how important turn order is in that game. And I think almost breaks that game in the fact that you can scoop up a lot of the most important dice in the very first turn before anyone else can. It could be just how our particular game played out. Maybe it's not always so fundamentally important, but I really felt in that game being first player was fundamentally, you know, extremely important. There are a lot of similarities, actually, more than I think. Uh, the more I think about it, between Battle for Rakugan and Trois, because in both games, yes, turn order is extremely consequential, and both games I feel are less than the sum of their parts. Honestly, when it comes to Trois, I love the dice selection mechanism in principle, but in practice, yes, it makes turn order very consequential. Because as has been frequently observed in Trois, it's this dice selection mechanism whereby you're mostly dealing with other people's dice. What you roll is much less consequential. Mostly, you're stealing other people's dice, and so based on how the fundamental activity cards get revealed. Many of them rely on a very precise configuration of dice, which may or may not obtain across the table. And if they do obtain across the table, probably one person's going to be able to take advantage of it, which is admittedly somewhat reminiscent of Black Angel, namely that there are these very sort of opportunistic, possibly single-use, possibly second-use combos you'll be able to use. You can't rely on them and pump them regularly. And that part, I think, is fine. But ultimately, when it comes to Trois, I think the rule set is very clumsy in a lot of ways. You know, the, the talking again about those activity cards, which are random every game, and yes, that leads to wonderful variety, but they sometimes require, you know, three or four explanations to properly parse. It's like, okay, you trigger these dice, but first you have to buy the dude. Oh, you don't have to buy the dude. Use this other currency to buy a dude. Then you buy the dude with this money. That gives you some points now. Now you can start using the card. Okay, you trigger it with the dice. That puts some cubes out. Then the cubes don't do anything by themselves. They piggy about, etc. In an otherwise tight Euro game, I think that's a shame. And secondly, one thing that we encountered very seriously was the events, the random events that you get every round can be quite consequential. Oh, you were pursuing a strategy where you wanted to max out the cathedral? Sorry, you're going to be whacked. Or something along those lines. Same thing with the activity cards. You know, you might be building towards something and then the activity cards you want don't, don't, don't obtain. It's really telling, and this sometimes happens with Euro games, with dice, where the dice aren't the problem as far as randomness is concerned. It's really the cards. And I really wish that with a tighter card set and with less strangeness about how those cards are activated, I think you might have something. But I, Trois was was brought to the table under the, 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 the general standard of, this is a Euro game I remember playing a couple times when it came out, and I have fond memories of bits, but remembering it not really hanging together. Let's give it another shot. Oh yeah, I, do, I still don't think it really hangs together properly. I think maybe 
maybe when you introduce people to it, maybe emphasize more on the cards that they are the actual actions as opposed to, you know, bumping people out and, and trying to increase your dice pool. Say, these are the actions that you're going to do. Because it seems almost they they quickly grasped, you know, the, the different stations and then thought maybe because, you know, because in most games when you flip up a card, it's usually a side thing or or something you can sort of ignore because, you know, it's something that's on the side. But those are pretty well the fundamental main actions of the game. That's fair. Uh, thank you for blaming the victim here. No, it's Mark, always I, the I, rules explainer, I, I, explainer's I, fault. I didn't mean your rules explanation. I meant in general, Mark. Right. But And again, that leads to that disappointment. You're right. The cards are, are, are very, very salient, especially as far as the victory point generation goes, which makes it all the more disappointing when the tier three cards come out, which are by far the most consequential, and they reward a strategy that you haven't been building towards. Or they happen to fall into the lap of somebody else who just happens to have been really benefited from that. You know, that plus the weird events, and the events can lead to a strange death spiral. If you if you can't counter the events fast enough, well, then you start losing all your red dice. And, oh, the red dice are the things you use to counter the events to begin with. And it's this bizarre thing. Anyway, there's a lot to like in Twa, just as there's a lot to like in Black Angel. Twa, for me, and Black Angel are very much sort of, there's lots of really good bits that I like. It doesn't quite hang together in a way that's satisfying. And I wish that that element could be brought together in a slightly tighter, slightly more cohesive package. Agreed. This has been a great week for me. Got to play El Grande, which Walker doesn't let me talk about. Played another game of Barrage. Just a minor note about Barrage and its expansion. Barrage is one of those kinds of games where I really want to try the elements of the expansion, but I don't really want to explain all the elements of the expansion unless it's the people who have already played before. And it's already a long enough game with enough information load that I constantly feel like I'm never going to find that ideal group where I can say, all right, now we're playing Barrage all in which is partially a consequence of the Cult of the New, partially a consequence of the amount of churn that we undergo, but also just a partial consequence of how intricate Barrage is, which is not necessarily a knock. As we said last week on on a review of On Mars, I don't object to intricacy necessarily so long as it all hangs together. And I think Barrage hangs together very, very well. Maybe less well when it's fully expanded, but again, I don't know. I haven't tried it and probably won't have a chance to try it in the near future. Also gets to play Too Many Bones again, which is wonderful. Uh, despite the fact that Too Many Bones is having an expansion coming out sometime in the next few months, I still managed to play it, which is a which is a marvel for me. That's crazy. I was also it, got... Like, before you go on, was that... Did you play it two-player or four-player? Two-player. Nice, okay. If I were playing four-player, I'd still be playing. Uh, this is probably true. Yes. Why did you know that I didn't play three-player? Because that would be madness. Okay. So, I also got to do a head-to-head comparison of Hanabi and Shipwreck Arcana, both of them being co-op deduction games. And I commented in the past that I was coming to the conclusion that Shipwreck Arcana was cute and enjoyable and does a very good job of fooling you into thinking you're playing a deduction game. But it isn't really a deduction game because there are forced plays all the time and you're mostly just going through the motions. And the fact that sometimes games are enjoyable, even though you're just going through the motions, and Shipwreck Arcana might be one of those. And getting to play Hanabi and Shipwreck Arcana back-to-back really, really brought that home. Because with Hanabi, even with two players, I play it mostly with my gaming partner in Boston, who can be called Boston Huey. And there it's a question of, is he going to get the inference that I want him to get? Am I getting the right inference that he's trying to put that he's trying to give to me? All right, here's a risk based on tempo. Can we get away with this? Here's a little bit of a risky play, but I think I can get away with it, etc. Shipwreck Arcana is just, oh, well, okay, this card tells me to play here, so I guess I'll play here. Which again is okay, but it's just not nearly as brilliant as Hanabi is. 
as far as co-op deduction games go. I really do think that Hanabi is Antoine Boza's masterwork in a very, very good and impressive career, and we still like a lot of his recent output, like Last Bastion, for example, but Hanabi is just his absolute peerless mastery of co-op deduction, and so I think I'm going to get rid of Shipwreck Arcana, and I'm going to keep playing Hanabi even 10 years on. Mark, you sent me a picture this week. Made me think that you were in a antique shop or some sort of board game museum. It was a picture of Top Gun, and I immediately looked up to see what year this was from. You said, I'm going to pick this up. I said, well, you know, game from the 80s, probably not that good. But this is a game from 2020, and it is a a game about the 1980s movie Top Gun, whereas you actually have a volleyball phase followed by then a dogfighting phase. And uh, I really think we had a lot of fun playing this game. So can we agree that we're going to be adults talking about this game and not going too deep into references? I promise nothing. I really think you should try, Walker. Well, here's the deal. So the Top Gun strategy game was designed by Kenny Loggins, and it's suffused with enough paint to make you think that it was, like, illustrated by Anthony Edwards' splattered brains or something. I mean, it's hardly the act of a maverick to shoot down a licensed mass-market game, but you'd have to be some sort of Iceman not to want to slide on into the absurd delight of the Top Gun strategy game. So first you play a silly game of volleyball, try not to get distracted by your opponent's oiled torso and Ray-Ban sunglasses, in an attempt to goose your available actions for the dogfight phase. And while it won't necessarily take your breath away, it's simple enough that you could teach any passing tomcat how to usher the enemies of democracies into Armig Eden. Danger zone. So, yes, <laughs> I picked it up. You had talked about it. If you recall, you talked about it in the news. Yes. And I just happened to see it in a American big box store. And I'm like, oh, well, this is interesting. I didn't know that it was out yet. It was less than $25, and I just picked up the box and looked at the back, and I saw that, indeed, it is a two-phase game where first you play volleyball and then you do dogfighting. And then I was sold. I was sold on the strength of the absurdity of that premise and the ridiculousness of that kind of two-phase structure. I thought it was going to be a little bit painful just because I thought the the volleyball game was going to be silly and then followed by, like, a traditional, you know, hour-long dogfighting where you're just constantly trying to outmaneuver and get behind your opponent but it turned out to be not that at all the dogfight was very actually was interesting and and you had orders to do and and it didn't take as long as i thought and had an interesting you know get the right angle and the right turning and the right facing to give you the right number of dice and you have a chance to do the classic scene where you fly upside down on the russian pilot and flip him the bird and we don't know it's russian and well, in the movie. In the movie, you don't know that it's Russian. It's just some... Oh. It's never specified. Well, yes, yes. I have seen, just for just for the record, I saw about 20 minutes of Top Gun. I could not watch any more. It was, like, I watch a lot of bad stuff. I consume a lot of low-grade media. I could not sit through Top Gun. I just could not. And I, as I say, I watch lots of trash. I just couldn't do it. It was too much. It was too much. But I do remember that scene. So all this... All this uh... All this game is missing is a like a motorcycle first player marker or something way to take the first player marker with a motorcycle and then you'd be all set. Or maybe a bar fighting scene, maybe that would be cool as well. But other than that, I think I give it top marks. So it's weird. I have some concerns. I I don't know if the volleyball has any choices in it. I think it must because I've now played it. I've only played it twice, but I played it against two different people and I've yet to win a single match of volleyball. That's got to say something, I guess. So I played volleyball five times now in the game, and I've never won. So there might be something there. Maybe there isn't. 
And then the other thing is that that gives you better actions available for the dogfighting. And as you say, the dogfighting is borderline clever. It's really good. It's, you know, the sort of double guessing of the maneuver that you might find in an X-Wing or even sometimes in an Armada, but really, really tight and focused. And it's about just landing one hit. So you play a stupid game of volleyball, you try to get one hit. You play a stupid game of volleyball, you try to get one hit. Now, this all comes down to some dice rolling. But it's really, really tight and focused. And, and I mean, so does X-Wing. X-Wing comes down to dice rolling, too. I really enjoy the dogfighting. It's shockingly clever. It's not brilliant by any stretch of the imagination. But it's really quick, and it's really visceral, and it leads to the kind of interesting double think. What happens is, and I think part of this is because of how they set up the engagement. You pull a random engagement card, and both players start really close to each other, so it's really just a couple instances of doublethink and whether or not you're able to outmaneuver your opponent, because all you need to do is line up that one good shot. And sometimes you might flub it, but generally speaking, all you need to do is corner them once, and that's it. Then you move on to the next thing. So the pacing is quite excellent. And the way they do elevation, I thought the, the components were very clever. It's not, you know, these clunky pull something apart and raise the level or anything. It just slides out, and you raise it up and down, so you have different elevations, and it gives you advantages if you're higher or lower. And I thought they did a great job for a little game like that. Absolutely. It is for a licensed product, for a mass market product, for a product with its color palette. I think they get a lot of things really right, and it's hard to argue with the price point. I don't know if it is merely cute or if it is also actually clever, but I, for one, am very interested in finding out. For a two-player game, I thought they did a great job. Absolutely. And that was the Top Gun strategy game. We also got to play a game called Pipeline. Pipeline was put up by Capstone Games last year, also illustrated by Eno Tool. And I have to say, the more I play Eno Tool games, the more I like his covers and the less I like his actual interior graphic design. I don't know what it is. I'm not here to be an art critic. I just don't find his games very visually appealing once they've been taken out of the box. And to be fair, Pipeline isn't really apt to be visually stunning Anyway, it's a game about processing and selling oil. So, Crude. Yeah. So, uh, no pun intended, it's a very, very dry theme presented very dryly. This is the kind of economic management efficiency puzzle whereby you start wondering whether you should pay the $10 here to make $15 profit in a couple turns or whether you want to pay the $15 profit to get $35 profit two turns from now. Stuff like that. Endless calculation puzzles like that. But one of the things that I appreciate about it, because that is very much not really my ideal kind of game in terms of that levels of marginalia, but I do appreciate the fact that it is a Euro game where money management is key. It's not like a game like Modern Art, for example. Modern Art, for all its virtues, is not really about money management. Very rarely are you going to get cash strapped. You're probably always going to have enough money to make the bid you want to make. It's just a question of whether you want to spend that much. Pipeline, you need the cash. It is absolutely a question of, do I need, do I get the cash right now or do I hold off for something later? That part I like. But the part where you're eking out just very marginal effectiveness and you're trading off action efficiency versus dollars can sometimes get into a sort of making me feel like I'm doing a spreadsheet or balancing my checkbook rather than actually engage in gameplay. It doesn't help that the player interaction is what you might call subtle. There is a market and the market can be manipulated, but usually the market manipulation is dwarfed by you just wrestling with your own economic throughput concerns. So it's got some clever bits. It's pretty pretty well streamlined. 
But it's not really my kind of thing. If you're into these kinds of heavy, dry economic calculations, I think the pipeline's a pretty good place to start. The other thing that adds on to that that calculation is the fact that it's set turns. So not only can you like plan out all of your actions ahead of time, you know exactly how many turns you need to do that in. So you can it's much different than the game we just talked about, which is on Mars where there are tons of actions to do. This one and you'd have no idea when the game is gonna end really, but this one you definitely know but I found in this game, you just wanted more actions. Like there were, there was always something to do. Where in On Mars, you sort of said, well, I'm here. There's not much to do. I'll just do this because I've got nothing else to do. In Pipeline, there was never one of those actions. There was never something you did just because. There was, you're, there was always one more action that you needed. There was always something to do. At least that's what I felt. Actually, in my experience, it's funny you say that. In my experience, I had a, some wasted actions near the end of the game simply because... As I say, it's it's a question of economic efficiency and whether you can generate the necessary things you need by throwing money at the problem or throwing actions at the problem. And I had thrown too much money at the problem. And so at the end of it, I realized that I, I had actions left going for spare. For example, and this is just a question of expectations on my part. This is not a fault of the game. You can acquire these contracts and you fulfill contracts by getting oil of various quality and color and, and fulfilling it there. And you can do that for free. And I naturally thought, and indeed, this is one of those cases where I explained the game badly. And I said, this is one of the key ways that I think you're going to be making money. Not so, because the amount of money that you get from fulfilling a contract is proportionally less than you're going to get by selling it to the open market. Usually in games, that's not the case. Usually in a lot of Euro games, if you go sell something on the open market, you're not going to get as much as if you're fulfilling a contract. Here, it's the other way around. Selling it on the open market is action expensive, but very lucrative. Whereas fulfilling contracts, because it doesn't cost an action to fulfill the contract itself, is action efficient and not as lucrative. And I went and I pursued contracts, and I went and fulfilled them, and I did my thing. And as a result, near the end of the game, I'm like, okay, well, I know where I'm getting my oil, because I'm just going to be running my machines. I've got all these actions left. Oh, I really should have just saved my... I should have not picked up these contracts. I should have saved my oil and sold them in the open market. Lesson learned. So absolutely, there's a, there's a skill horizon. But I also agree with you. It's one of those games where if you sit down at the beginning of the game, if you really know what you're doing, you can probably plot out everything you're going to do for pretty much the entire game yeah there's not very much player interaction just maybe filling up some oil like if someone sells before you can and or buys before you can taking some oil and or tiles but there was there seemed to be an awful lot of tiles so i think you're always going to get the pipelines that you need the other interesting part i thought is the fact that the game will be different every time because what you get to do is you get to do a main action and then you can pay uh, 10 bucks and do the secondary action. Those switch up every game. So how they pair up is, I think is going to drastically change, you know, how the game is played because, because, you know, the, the associated action is completely different. Again, another instance of, are you going to be money inefficient or action inefficient? Which by itself is a trade-off that I, that I found kind of okay. But again, these kinds of tight economic puzzles, economic knife fights I'm all over. Like, give me a good splatter game any day of the week. But I'm not often in the mood for these kinds of economic calculation games where the margin call of being off by five bucks means your entire plan is wasted, things like that. Very demanding. Very challenging up front in terms of just managing basic things like money flow, which not a lot of Euro games do. But uh, not really to my taste. Well designed, not really to my taste. I got to play a game I'd been wanting to try for a while called Northern Pacific. This was designed by Tom Russell, initially put up by Winsome Games, and then republished in a very, very lovely edition by Rio Grande Games. Northern Pacific is a game that looks at cube rail games like Wabash Cannonball or Irish Gage and says, oh, you think that's simplified? Hold my beer. Irish Gage is very, very simple. Wabash Cannonball is very, very simple. And Northern Pacific has a rule sheet, just a double-sided rule sheet. And that is it. 
The game consists of a map. On your turn, you either put out a cube or move move the train. If the train reaches a city with your cube, you score. That's the game. And so it's all about collusion and turn order manipulation and passing the buck. It is all about reasoning whether someone else can spend their turn to move the train where you're going to, where you want it to go, or acknowledging that if you leave it to somebody else, they're going to hose you even worse than they would before. And despite that, so it was one of those things where I, I, I had to take it on faith that it was actually a quality game because uh, a number of very interesting things have been written by Cole Worley on it. A number of the train gamers of my association like it a great deal and put it in the same category as things like Irish Gage and Wabash Cannonball. And sure enough, it was really compelling. We were all cursing each other out for moving the train in ways we didn't want to do. A single cube placement could be very, very disastrous and change the contours of what was going on. It was very interesting and very quick and super minimalistic. I was very, very fond of Northern Pacific. And Tom Russell went on to found Hollenspiel, which is the war game, mostly war games, not exclusively war games. And I'm not a huge fan of all of Tom Russell's output, but he's he's a very interesting guy. He's one of the designers I was all I will always pay attention to, even if I don't like the fi- the, the finished product. And Northern Pacific is very much in the same sort of cube rails tradition, but stripped down yet even further. A very brutal, very tense game. No randomness, really. It's just a function of of manipulating turn order and uh, trying to pass the buck. And so I enjoyed it a great, great deal. And I highly recommend Northern Pacific for anyone who's in the mood for more cube rail goodness or cube rail adjacent goodness. Finally, I got to play Sakura Arms in the glorious, fully translated, all up to date season five complete edition. Yes, it is for Sakura Arms' sake that I had to descend into the world of sleeving, that I did genuflect before the altar of the the, of the sleeving gods, and I came away tainted. Uh, but I got to try all the new characters, and Sakura Arms is now in, in a place where a lot of fighting games are, or two-player fighting games, where I can play exactly my playstyle, which will guarantee that I will never play with that opponent ever again. Because if you give me the choice to play a brutally attritional playstyle, where I do hardly any damage to you, but I lock all your actions and you're never able to do what you want to do... I will take it nine times out of ten. Just naturally. I will gravitate towards those characters. That is absolutely my favorite way to play Battlecon. Whenever I introduce Battlecon to new players, I force myself not to play one of those characters because that's just how I like to play. But it is very frustrating, especially for new players. And now in Sakura Arms, there is a character that freezes you and fills up your aura with freezing frozen tokens, and which in turn makes you unable to move forward sometimes, sometimes unable to move backwards, and definitely not able to charge up. So you have to waste all these actions clearing all the ice tokens. It's great and also obnoxious. Yeah, sure, it's great for your opponent. I'm sure they love it. Look, I wanted to try the new character. The new character has uh, has ice powers. I tried out the new ice powers. What do you want from me? Nothing at all. I am not made of stone. I had a great time anyway. So again, this is one of those things where Sakura Arms' character roster is now sufficiently deep that there's a wide variety of possible playstyles. And all the standard, you know, I could put it in terms of the technical vocabulary of fighting games. I don't think that would necessarily be appropriate. Uh, but, you know, g- give me somebody who fights at long range and just tires people out and I'll take it. Uh, I'll gravitate towards it inevitably. And that's where we are with Sakura Arms. I've tried most of the new characters now. They're all really different and really interesting. I, it's such a shame that AEG isn't translating everything, but I am so grateful 
that there is an online community that is willing to put in the work and do the graphic design work to get all this translation done. It is a marvelous aspect of the hobby so that I don't have to learn a new language. And I am endlessly grateful for all the listeners because it's listeners that made this possible. Listeners that got me the expansions, listeners that, that, ga- that have uh, given the translations, listeners that have condescended to me talking about how sleeving is so easy and how could I be so stupid and ignorant as to find it difficult or challenging or daunting. So thank you equally to all of the listeners who've helped me on this journey. And I'm looking forward to many, many more experiences with my lovely, complete omnibus, missing nothing, full, full jerk freeze mode of does, Sakura Arm. Does it fit in the in the original box, all of it? Define original box, because there's the Shinmaku edition, and then there's the Ooh. expansion thing that came with a lovely box with a little bit of modification. The lovely expanded box will hold every character just one more expansion set, and I'm going to have to figure out another storage solution. Ooh. That's where we are. And those are the games that we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Saw another game in from that German toy fair market. It's called Ghost Adventure. And what you do in this game is that it's a double-layered board, right? So there's like little grooves and little sort of like slide quests. There's no grooves in slide quests, but it's the same sort of thing. It's like an adventure-type game. Well, so I think s- it's pretty groovy, Daddy. Yeah? So you spin this top. And you actually pick up this board, and then you're you're moving, you're teeter tottering around. But that's not all, Mark, because you don't just get to play on one board. You have to reach down while you're maneuvering the one board to grab the next board. And you have to skip it onto the next board, and there's like little pits that you have to jump over, and little bonus things that you can, you know, tilt over and hop onto. I I can't wait to give this a try. Toys are great. It's called Ghost Adventure. When is Iron Forest going to come out on the topic of multi-layer boards? I am not sure. Mm-hmm. Which one was that? Iron Forest is the semi-sequel to Ice Cool. Ah. Multi-level boards and going down tubes and falling down holes and all this kind of stuff. That sounds like fun. This is serious business. We are grown-ups, and we are talking about a very serious hobby. It is. Talking about serious, let me talk about this other thing. Super serious. have you ever thought, gee, I wish I could date a dragon? Well, (laughs) Mark, boy, do I have a game for you. It is called Cinder, and it, it, it... simulates a dating app between you and a dragon isn't that fantastic I can't, I, like like i thought my life was empty and now <laughs> now all is coming into place maybe this is on the heels of the latest rick and morty episode who knows it's possible here, here's the thing. I have found dragons aggressively uninteresting ever since my days of D&D when I was like 14, 15. They're just like the most blunt power fantasy imaginable. They're just huge and incredibly strong and they can get away with anything and they have all the, the dollars. They're, I don't find them interesting. Anyway. You had me with Simulates a Dating Sim because on the topic of trash media that I consume... I am a sucker for any kind of love triangle anywhere. I, I, I neglected to mention in the context of the Top Gun strategy game, I am waiting for there to be a Macross retheming of the Top Gun strategy game because Macross Plus is basically Top Gun and a million times better. That's one of the reasons why I didn't find the movie very compelling because I, I have endless, endless, comparatively high-quality media about fighter pilots and their ego contests. <laughs> Anyhow, setting all that aside with difficulty. I am looking forward to a game called Sonora, which is a new type of game called a flick and write. S- Sonora, like snore, 
I'm, okay, go ahead. It's quality humor I'm like sure. that that keeps I'm sure. us I'm paying. Just saying, I'm sure. Keeps the lights running here I'm, on So Very Wrong it, About it, Games it better, Walker. It better be really good with a name like that because you know. <laughs> so this is advertised as a flick and write game. Now, I don't know. If, flick and write. Yeah, I don't know whether flick and write is kind of like putting chocolate in with the peanut butter or this is orange juice with your toothpaste because we don't really like roll and write games, but we love flicking games. This could be the way to salvage roll and write or it could be the way to ruin flicking games. Frickin' right it is. See what frickin' 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 right it is? Walker, I, I love you, but you need to give up. Frickin' right? You need to really give up. Sorry. You need to move on to the next segment now. <laughs> you killed it. I, just, right. I can't play this game anymore. Speaking about killed, Mark, I got my copy because I paid for advanced shipping. I, I'm just, I was going over some, some Kickstarters, and this was October 6th, 2016. We both pledged for Siege of the Citadel second edition, the techno fantasy board game. It is now four years later and you still do not have your copy. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, I got the flood of emails from every, every, uh, Kickstarter project out there about the coronavirus and how it's delaying production. I just thought about this, this one that's already four years you know, late have the goal. Well, it's, to not, like it's, also not four, it's not four years late. Yes, it says. It's, I looked it up today. Estimated delivery two thousand seventeen. Yeah, it's not four years from two thousand seventeen yet. Well, okay, sorry. True enough. So yeah. it's two years late. Right. Three years late. <laughs> yeah. So uh, there's a number of things going on here. One of them is I get to be the lucky one because I have not yet had Siege of the Citadel inflicted on me. We both pledged hoping that it changed, and as we commented, having played it a while, the base game a while ago, nothing has changed. They, they've modernized close to nothing. We are drowning in quality uh, dungeon crawls, and it is not one of those things. But I was actually going to talk about the coronavirus. This is, this is fascinating, because in addition to the normal uncertainty of the post-Chinese New Year situation, we now have a number of updates from factories saying they literally have no idea when they are going to reopen. At or, all. Or, or if at all, yes. You're right. So this is, I mean, this is really unfortunate. Okay, look, let us obviously compartmentalize this, yes. right? The death of every human being is a tragedy, and it is terrible that a number of people are suffering, that people have already died. And, you know, I, I mean this in all sincerity. My heart's going out to everyone that, that suffers and dies from any pandemic. But keeping things in perspective, right, the number of people who die from influenza every year is vastly higher from the number of people who have already died from the coronavirus. And I'm not saying people are overreacting. I'm just saying we need to keep things in perspective. We got through the SARS epidemic. The coronavirus is probably going to be another thing that we weather. The problem is that in the interim, nobody knows. And in the lack of information, a lot of things thrive. And the setting aside the real human toll of the virus setting aside the genuine suffering and the genuine fear and focusing on the less important but nonetheless more salient to our podcast, a lot of publishers are being left in the lurch because a lot of publishers rely on cash flow. Cash flow is everything. They rely very distinctly on releases coming out at a certain rate. Now, when it comes to a Kickstarter being delayed, that's less of a direct economic hit because they've already got their money. They have their interest-free loan. It's problematic. But if they need to sell a game at a con, if they need copies to arrive at the right time to go through the retail distribution and they were relying on a hit, 
X weeks after Chinese New Year, and now they have a supplier telling them we literally have no idea when we will be legally allowed to have employees come back on the premises. This is a massive deal, and I have to imagine it's causing considerable economic harm to our hobby. Yeah, or if you have a game that relies on expansions, right? It's just come out, it's a big hit, and you expected, you know, expansions to pour out right after, and now they are not coming. It could be a game that will just pass away and die. Absolutely. Speaking about things that I thought were gone. Dragon Dice, Mark. Long ago, TSR brought out a game called Dragon Dice. And, and I never it- heard anything else about it, but I was on Kickstarter today and, and I saw the, I said, look, Amazon Dragon Dice, you know, pledge here and you get your Amazon Dragon Dice. I Hasn't said, it been resurrected twice before I, already? But this, these are things I don't know. Okay. I didn't know, but now I do. There's a fourth edition Dragon Dice. There's a whole website. There was a place where you can buy. I have nothing but fond memories of this game. I, I don't really want to go back and play it because it's hmm. one of those things where I fear that it, after playing so much more since then, I'm worried that it won't live up to my expectations of what, what I want it to be. But I remember it being a great little dice game where it simulated, you know, all of these units attacking each other. You had elves and goblins and, and tree men and maybe, and, maybe a dragon or two. There were dragon dice. Yes. Maybe okay. one or two. I think, yeah, that's, that's something to do with the name. I don't know. But anyway, I remember being, very interesting. So if anyone's got their old dragon dice, you know, hidden away in, in some sort of storage area, look it up online. You'll find brand new rules free to download and, and I'm sure they fixed it up. And if you want to buy more stuff, that's all available to order. You are not the only person I have heard comment very favorably on dragon dice. One of those things from the bygone era of collectible card games and other collectible games. It was one of those things where people said, Hey, yeah, surprisingly good. It's one of the reasons why I keep people. People keep trying to bring it back with varying degrees of success. I've never tried it. I'm somewhat curious about it, but uh, I fear that it might be uh, a little too long for what it is. It might uh, drag on. What, only you get to do that? Yes, yes, only Only you get to... Yeah, that was terrible. I do one bad pun? Yes, and it's awful. Oh, jeez, this is not fair. I know. Life's not fair, Mark. And those that's all the news we have this week and why none of it really matters. On to the topic of the week which is false expectations, prejudging a game based on something like the designer or category or suggested player count or how the artwork looks. So once again, we just gave each other the title. How I'm going to internalize this is that things that can falsely jade your opinion of a board game and how you can avoid it and or overcome this. So should I just go over my my points here and then... And then well, can, can we just sure start with the elephant in the room? Sure. And I'm not talking about my uh, my corpulence. Um, can we talk about GMT games for a second? Sure. And can we talk about how you will not play GMT games because of, and I'm being very specific here, their cover art? Yes, it's And awful. not even just their cover art, but the color of well, their the cover color art? the color palette. Like, well, it's not so much I won't play them. I just, I'm curious on what goes along the board. There's all sorts of these YouTube videos of how they, you know, pitch a movie. Like this is, you know, how the pitch went in the boardroom and it makes fun of, I really would like to sit in, sit in on a GMT cover art pitch. It's like, here's, here's what we're going to put on the cover of this game. This is how it's going to, you know, entice and excite people to want to play and or purchase this game based on this, you know, exciting and interesting Picture and or color palette. It's very odd to me. That's all. Okay. Okay. Here's the thing. I can, being a fan of GMT games, I think I can disabuse you or, or at least give you some notion of what I think the process is. I think the process is as follows. They have a guy named Roger McGowan 
who does the overwhelming majority of their graphic design, layout, and cover art. And what happens is, they say, hey, Roger, here's 10 more games we're going to be releasing this year. Why don't you make some cover art? And Roger says, okay, and then he does. I think that's the process. I really... (laughs) And honestly, for what they're calculating in terms of how to how to appeal to their customer base. Keep in mind, GMT Games did something like Kickstarter way before Kickstarter was a thing. They survive mostly on a pre-order system that they pioneered. That I mean, it's different from Kickstarter in a number of respects, in that you are charged no money until it is already in production and at the printers and ready to be ready to be sent to you in a few months. So that is a big difference. But they have been producing things only in response to online demand for a long time, and they still a lot of their output is driven by that. Some of it isn't, some of it is. So cover art is not really much of a thing. It's mostly well, driven by well, I... I'm interested in this theater theater. I'm interested in this time period. I'm interested in this designer. So the shelf appeal of the game after the fact is usually, I think, less of a consideration for someone like GMT. But it should be 100% be because they've already got, like you said, they already have their customer base. They, people who are pre-ordering and ordering this game are going to do it regardless of the cover art. I think so, yeah. So the cover art is solely to entice new people to their product that have not seen it before. Right, but they rely on less of that appeal for a proportion of their income than, say, another game I, that... Okay, I, I just thought maybe they're in it for money, but apparently oh, I must Walker. be wrong. Like, here's the thing. On the topic of of GMT covers, right, you are not the first... I had not encountered this deep a prejudice against the visual appeal of a game until I moved to Kingston when you and a number of other locals would just opine on GMT games generally. And then I'd say, what's your beef with GMT games? which ones have you played? To which the answer would then be, none, I'm just hating on the cover art. <laughs> I, like, uh, right. I think there's an aphorism about judgment and covers, I don't know. All right, so that does cover one part of our, our, our discussion. But just to circle back. Sure, let's circle back. You've enjoyed the GMT games I've shoved in front of your 100%. face. 100%. I mean, not all of them have, have been things that you were really interested in long term. Like, you're not really big on Talon, as I recall. Uh, but you you recognized the promise and you thought that it was intriguing in a number of ways. 100%. So another thing about, about GMT, though, and then we can move on and talk about other things past GMT. Uh, GMT is also one of those companies where you really have to pay attention to their output. Because in addition to the con sims and the war games, they also put out, you know, lighter stuff, even from things like Chan Jensen and Welcome to Centerville. Uh, they also put out, you know, straight Euro games like Dominant Species, also by Chan Jensen. They also put out... Charming things like Leaping Lemmings, which I thought was a very, very cute race game about running your lemmings off the edge of a cliff. And uh, Thunder Alley by Jeff Horger, the, the the race game. Very un things. GMT really is one of those uh, publishers that does a lot of different things. And so you have to be very, very careful about paying attention to their output above and beyond the fact that their cover art is certainly only uh, but always, appealing to those of a discerning palette. All very, always solid things from GMT, that's for sure. I wouldn't go that far. Their editorial, GMT was also very much the Kickstarter before Kickstarter, was also very much of the, the, where their development process could be all over the map, where a promising young designer or a promising designer could be paired with an excellent developer and they put out a solid product that's really good, all the way to some guy has this game and may or may not have play-tested it, and oh, by the way, you're going to need living rules five seconds after the thing is released because there's a tremendous amount of holes, and it doesn't really hang together, and oh, by the way, it's ten hours to play. So, I'm a big fan of GMT, but I'm not going to say everything they put out is solid. You've only experienced the curated bits of GMT Games, Walker. (laughs) 
So that does cover one of my one of my points, which is bad bad artwork. How about just designer? Let's start with designers. Like you, people sure. might be pre predisposition to a certain designer, either good and or bad. I'm really not a designer. Uh, person, I don't really look to a designer, but if it's a game by Reiner Knizia, 100%, I will play it every time. Other than that, I'm open to almost anything. I, I'm very much am a designer guy, and there are certain designers who I know their output I will find reliably good, like Reiner Knizia or Rudiger Dorn or Karl-Heinz Schmiel or people like that. Then there are designers whose output is reliably fascinating, and I would never, ever miss a chance to try one of those designs. People like Jim Felly. Uh, then there are designers where I have no idea what they're going to come out with next. And the salient example for this for me is Vladek Vadl. This is a guy who his initial output was things like Prophecy, things like Dungeon Lords, and Through the Ages, A Story of Civilization. And then he comes out with things like Bunny Bunny, Moose Moose, and Codenames. And I remember when Codenames came out, and the response was, oh, Vladek Vadl's got a party game? All right. Okay, sure. And so, any like I have, n- I literally have no idea what Vladikavadal would ever put out next. Just like Eric Lang, you really don't know what he's going to come out with next because at first he did a lot of work with this, you know, the action cost, you know, like uh, Blood Rage and or Chaos in the Old World type setting, action selection. But then he's he's all over the place from like XCOM and and Bloodborne and anyway, he's all over the place, and you never know what he's going to come out with next. Some designers I have a prejudice against because of a certain design aesthetic that I don't really appreciate, but they nonetheless sometimes come out with a design out of left field and you really have to have to try it. For me, probably one of the most salient examples of this is Corey Kaneska. I, I'm not going to go out and try every Corey Kaneska design, but I should probably try more than I do. That's one of the reasons why I still haven't played Star Wars Rebellion, for example. I'm not interested in the theme. I don't like most of Corey Kaneska's design work, but... Uh, he has done games that I've really enjoyed. You know, yes, he's done Discover Lands Unknown, and he's done a whole bunch of overwrought things that I never, ever want to touch again. But he also did things like Space Hulk Death Angel, which is a remarkably minimalistic, simple design, and very, very cool. He also did Gears of War, which was really ahead of its time in terms of the co-op versus AI crawly thing that has been, uh, you know, iterated and improved. But Gears of War really was a, a huge leap forward in terms of that. And so, you know, most of the time I can peg a designer and figure out whether I'm going to be intrigued, but sometimes also I need to get past the fact that I dislike most of their games to give them a shot for some of their other stuff. All right, next I'm going to move on to a type of game. So like a deck builder or worker placement or dexterity game, you might automatically try it or dislike it because of the type of game it is. And the only thing I have here is that you know, you might want to either, people tend to want to stay in their comfort zone, right? You know, if they like deck builders, they want to stay with it. Or you should, and I'm saying, you know, you should try to move out of your comfort zone and try new things. Or or they, if you don't like deck building, this particular game might use the mechanism in a different way that's very interesting and intriguing. So give it a try. Or how they intermix with, with each other, like how they do, you know, deck building with worker placement, you know, so, you know, how it actually plays out in the game. Yeah, some of the genres that are quite divisive, especially locally, are dexterity games. You know, very often you'll have the one or two people in a group that really has no interest in dexterity games. And that's fine, I understand that. Dexterity games are very much different from most of the more strategic or tactical fare that we normally play. Social deduction games can also be very divisive. I'd just like to point out that I had two excellent, excellent games of The Resistance today, and it made me so happy. 
another very divisive field is co-op games. A lot of people, and I've, this is more about people I've read about than actual encountered, but there are some people who have a very strong antipathy towards anything that's competitive, and there are lots of other people that have strong, very strong antipathy towards anything that's cooperative. Now, thankfully, the, the hobby is big enough now that if you only ever want to play co-ops or only ever want to play competitive games, you can find just a tremendous variety just in those lanes. But those do tend to be some of the more divisive ones. And yeah, I really think that if you hate co-ops because you just think that it's a shared puzzle to be solved and someone's going to alpha game, you need to give things like Spirit Island a try. You need to try the ones that are really different from a lot of the other ones. Or games like Hanabi. Hanabi is, yes, it's a cooperative puzzle, puzzle to be solved, but it's completely immune from alpha gaming, for one thing. And so usually if you find, you you know, you identify the one thing about a genre that you loathe, very often, if you look hard enough, you can find a, a game that doesn't run afoul of that. My next point is things that are written on the box, i.e. player count or age. Oh, you mean the lies. The lies. The right? lies. So one, one way to look at it is, is children's games or party games. People might want to steer away. They think just party games are silly or or have no thought process or, you know, aren't very interesting where, you know, they've they've proven that that is just not the case. These or, people need to get over themselves and get code names and wavelength and... Exactly. And or dexterity games, maybe, you know, just the fact that how interesting and fun they are. I've yet, I, I've been fortunate. I've yet to encounter anyone who looks down their nose at a dexterity game just because it's, you know, for kids or something. Most of the time it's because they're really clumsy and they find it frustrating or because... I've engaged in a lot of very unproductive arguments, or at least I've been witness to a lot of unproductive arguments about what is a game versus what is a sport. At which point, as longtime listeners know, I am not sympathetic or interested to categorical arguments like that. It's a game if we talk about it. <laughs> so, exactly. <laughs> that's our definition. Um, one of the things that I find generally about talking about duration, because we've talked about the lies on boxes before, we've talked about games that are too long. One thing that I find very deceptive in terms of false expectations as you're about to sitting down to play a game is how many rounds a game can end. Because even experienced gamers, they might start developing heuristics or start figuring out how long it's going to go. But there are some games where I have to tell people, this game is going to be shorter than you think it's going to be. This is particularly true of things like uh, Pax Renaissance or Cerebria. These are dense games and you spend 45 minutes, sometimes longer, explaining the game, and then you have to tell everybody, oh, by the way, the game probably isn't going to last much longer than the rules explanation. <laughs> it's probably Now, that, that might be a knock against them, but it might also be a reason to just set up and play again. Uh, but then there are games that will you know, reliably last the, the right amount of time, but fewer rounds than you might expect. That's something I always flag when teaching Tribune, Primus Inter Paris, or Senji. I would tell them, look, this is probably going to last, actually, in both cases, about four to six rounds tops. And you have to know what the general horizon is. And so a lot of people get surprised when a game is over sooner than they thought it might be. The other thing is player count. The box might say it's good with six or only good with two, or even when you read online, it'll tell you, you know, it plays best at a certain number. And I really think it's depending on your group. You know, some some groups, you know, think too much. I shouldn't say some groups think, think too, too much. much. <laughs> some groups just like to optimal move every time they play and they want to make sure you know overthink every move allow me to once again quote one of my dear friends from massachusetts misplays are interesting play faster exactly and some groups like most of the ones we have just like to play the game and react to you know fix their mistakes on the next turn say oh i should have done that instead of this next turn i'll make an even worse mistake well one, one of the things that i find with player count is that People don't have assumptions, very strong assumptions, about what a two-player game is like. A two-player game can be any number of things. But the moment the player count gets in, certainly in excess of six, 
but usually around six and up, people then start making certain assumptions about what kind of game it is. And I wanted to flag this in the context of two brilliant games released in the past few years that really subvert this expectation, namely Guards of Atlantis and Citadel Confluence. These are quality strategy games with excellent decision-making and very interesting decisions to be had that you can play with seven, eight, nine people. No problem. And that is not the normal expectation. Normally, when you get up to that many people, you assume it's a party game where, with light decision-making, you can just play it on the fly. And I really appreciate the fact that one of the design thresholds that, that we've been crossing lately is just reimagining what you can do with a large player count strategy game. Next thing I have on my list, I saw a couple things here. I'm just going to lump them all into one big category, and that's things that are sitting on my shelf. Now, why are <laughs> why are these things sitting on my shelf? Because there's multiple reasons. One, there's games like the the biggest Batman game that just came out. Terrible written rule book, right? So if you have a badly written rule book, then you know you're going to be predisposed not to play it. Or much like Sign Tempor, it's just taking up like three cubicles in the thing. You open up the box, you have no idea what expansions to play with or what what pieces to use. So you're just going to not bother even playing it because you just don't know which ones to use. One of the expectations that I am always very, very happy when it's subverted is, and I think that the market's moved on a considerable extent, five years ago, or maybe even a little bit longer, the bias against licensed games was a lot stronger than it is now. We've seen a number of very quality licensed games, and even ones that I really liked. I, I'm a huge fan of Risk Mass Effect. I'm a huge fan of the Homeland game that we, was released a while ago. We just talked about Top Gun. We just talked about Top Gun, and whatever the qualities of Top Gun are, it's not a lazy cut-and-paste slapdash thing. Gears of War I talked about earlier. It's so funny. I think, I think almost in my mind as well, like when we say Star Wars, I almost put them in a totally different category than other IP games. You know what I mean? It just seems... It's See, kind of a genre unto itself. Yeah, that, kind of I mean, that's, cer- itself. that's certainly the way that Fantasy Flight has been monetizing yeah. things. It's just it's just odd, you know, now that I think about it. It's like, wait, all the Star Wars stuff is also IP stuff. Yeah. Maybe True. because it's just all, well, you probably won't back me up on this, but it's all been so, you know, fairly pretty good, in my opinion. I don't, I don't know that I've ever had a seriously bad experience with a Star Wars licensed property, honestly. I mean, X-Wing was cute. I haven't played X-Wing 2.0. I, I take it on faith that it's good. Armada was clever. I don't really have anything against Imperial Assault. It was, it's fine. Uh, people keep trying to tell me to play Rebellion, and I'm sure sooner or later I'll try Rebellion, but... Yeah, maybe one day I'll... Other than uh, Outer Rim, honestly, it's all been fine. Oh, yes. At least Rim. fine. Outer Rim was painful. All right, you could have had a really bad first play, so then you're you know predisposed not to play it again because the first play was terrible. Are, but are those false expectations? I think those are legitimate. I mean, if you had a really bad first play of a game, even if everyone else at the table is telling you, look, this was a really deviant play session, normally it never goes like this, and very strange things happen. I mean, it may be a misrepresentative sample, but I don't I, I don't know if I uh, see for false like, expectations. If everything that made it bad happen in game but if there's reasons why it went bad i.e the rules were explained not properly or if oh there was, sure if there was outstanding circumstances why your first play was bad then that, if it was the first play was bad because of actual game mechanics then yes 100 on your page few things are more frustrating 
than a game session being explained badly and then you have a bad experience with the game and then left not knowing whether it was the game that was unfortunate with a better rules explanation and perhaps not even knowing whether you can have another first crack at it, right? Sometimes the bad first play will forever poison your ability to appreciate the thing for the rest of time. Now, fortunately, there's other things to move on to so you can you can survive. As a result, there are some people I know who I am not going to have, I'm not going to sit down to a game with them blind if I'm excited about a game and they bring it because I know that they might ruin it forever. I'm going to have to make sure that I've read the rule book before I sit down to rules explanation with them. Mentioning no names in particular. I have no idea who you're talking about. No, no, no. About. You have really... No, I'm not, I know it's not me. No, it's, it's definitely not you. You have upped your game considerably. Your your rules explanation game over the past few weeks has gotten very good. Well, like I said, I think I was... I, th- I In my opinion, I thought I was a good rules explainer. Just literally, literally for the past like three years, I've just let you do it. And that was wrong of me. Let me repeat. Over the past few weeks, your rules explanations have been really good. Why, thank you, Mark. All right. So really bad or had to fight with the components or symbology in a game will make you not want to play it again. The race for the galaxy problem. Yes. Or say if the game is unavailable. Like say if it's out of print or some people just really want to add it. I don't know how to put this. Like they want to be able to purchase it. Like if they can't get the game themselves or, you know, or. Oh, sure. I mean, if they're, they're not going to be able to relive this experience, like because they can't get the game, then they might be predisposed not to play it. It's true. It's a, it's a strange kind of collection bias. Just the, the fear of the ephemeral. And I am certainly sympathetic to it. And I talked about this other one, the look of the game, bad art, or it looks dated. Like sometimes I've, you've brought games. I'm just like, you know, when was this game published? You know, in the seventies sometimes. And that's a predisposition of it being bad. Absolutely. The, the, the El Grande problem. I remember actually, I, I, I meant to say this back when we were talking about GMT games, but the sort of Euro aesthetic of the late nineties to the early aughts, I'd say, where, uh, I remember to me, the sort of dividing line is when Hansa Teutonica was published in 2009 and people said, this looks like a throwback to a few years ago, because even then the Euro market had moved on, but you know, late nineties to early aughts, it was the frowny Euro man on the cover sort of, that was peak frowny Euro man. And uh, I remember I was, right about that time, I was introducing some friends in Montreal to a bunch of games. There was this one guy named Jules who was a younger guy. He was in early teens. And he had been raised on a steady diet of CCGs and Fantasy Flight games. He played a whole bunch of Fantasy Flight games. I'm like, all right, we're going to play these games. And I, I showed him Winky. I showed him Tigers and Euphrates. And he came away with his mind blown and he uttered a line that I will never, ever forget when he was explaining to his other like 12, 13, 14 year old friends about having played some Euro games with me. And he said, plus c'est laid, plus c'est bon. The uglier it is, the better it is. <laughs> and he was like, he was like this, and he like pulls out the cover of, of Tigers and Euphrates with, with the Sumerian man with a pot on the cover. He's like this, this is, this is what a war game looks like. This is conflict. This is competition. And I'm like, I have done my job. <laughs> I have made another disciple. Absolutely. And this is one of those things where, look, you, you, there are so many aspects to the hobby. Not everyone wants to be an Omni gamer and that's fine. That's cool. I don't wear it as a badge of pride. It literally is a description of the kind of games we'll play. We'll play nearly anything from tabletop miniatures and role-playing games and Euro games, whatever. Uh, I, I feel blessed that I was kind of got my entry into modern gaming through the Euro game sphere because it trained me not to care about what it looks like. <laughs> it's true. On to the next part. If if it got a bad review, so if you have Who a, pays attention to reviewers? I, I don't know. Jeez. So if a 
but sometimes people listen to bad reviews. As a lot of our listeners say they like all the games that we say that we don't like, they like. So they listen to us to tell, honestly, tell, say that. So we say games we don't like, so they know which ones to pick up. Honestly, that you know, I meant to comment on this during the one of the year in review episodes. That is my favorite piece of feedback. Somebody saying, "I listened to your review of this game that you hated, and based on what you said, I knew I would enjoy it, so I picked it up." That really that makes me feel good about what we're doing. Honestly. Next point would be you may, might have played it with the wrong group. Maybe you introduced this game to the wrong type of people. Maybe you felt so it went badly or it, it just did go badly in that particular group and it would go differently in a different group. The, the game had has offensive content in it. You know, it might deal with old premises that you might not like, so you go in with a predisposition of not liking it. Games like uh, Five Tribes or games like this that have offensive contact, bad offensive artwork, stuff like that. Maybe you'll that go too, in with... That too strikes me as a legitimate reason not to like it, though. Because, again, you know, we... we... Sorry, not to... Not to yeah, uh, yeah, well, I'm torn on it. You, I guess you not you can not like it in general, but not to like it as a game. Oh, you mean your distaste for the overall experience leading you to have false impressions of the quality of it as a uh, purely as a design element? Exactly. Right. I mean, at that point, we're we're getting into the splitting hairs of do you properly evaluate its virtues in this one sphere, even Ex though overall you're not interested yeah, in it. Yeah. But from a holistic perspective, once again, just to you know repeat what we said over and over again, these are cultural objects and they should be appreciated as such. And as such, they have a, a variety of different factors that go into it. So from my perspective, I'm not particularly interested in deciding whether it's you know if i if i find that the game distasteful because it's it's got objection that's, that's going part on. part and parcel the next part is i already talked about like dragon dice right i didn't want to play because it, it might be bad so say so, so nostalgia right so you have predisposed to like the game because you have fond memories of you, you know you, you used to like it so or you have that deep fear in your heart because you played it you played it and enjoyed it before you became a real hobbyist and you wonder whether it can hold up exactly you could be too close to the game mark so you you know have a disposition to think that it's the best game ever. You could be it could have been a play tester. Your friend could have designed it. Could be your own design. You could have been the person that bought it. When you pay a whole bunch of money for a game, sometimes you're you you think it's the greatest game ever. Maybe you've painted some of the figures in this game. Maybe you've done some extra work. Maybe you've blinged it out or tricked it out. So now you've got some you know extra investment in this game. So you might just think it's. And and all of those are like many other things. They can cut both ways, right? I've exactly. seen even even in me. I've waited so long, slash I paid so much money, slash it was so difficult to acquire, that can either lead to standards and expectations that no game could possibly meet, and or blinders that lead me to overlook any of its faults. And it's mysterious as to when it's one way as opposed to another. I have no idea when it leads me to like something that I shouldn't or hate something that I should like. It's, it's strange. As at one point, I should have tacked this in with the first play part, but maybe when you play it the first time, you're in a bad mood, or you're sick, or you're not feeling well, or some something happened during the game, so now, you know, it just tainted the whole experience of that game. Did I hit everything that you have? Is there anything you'd like to add, sir? I would like to add that you should play more GMT games. I would like to add that they should get a marketing employee. <laughs> well, that'll do it for this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We were supposed to talk about our Patreon. We didn't. Oh, is this a times five? It's a times five. Oh, we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. Thank you for all the people who uh, donate to our Patreon. We are we... sincere. 
sincerely grateful. We really appreciate. Really can't say that enough. I'm going to be starting a GoFundMe shortly to get me a new Mustang. I, I think why are all these people dying? If you get all the GoFundMes, I need a GoFundMe for a new car. Uh, but I'm going to be looking for look forward. By the way, Patreon backers to my review of the various Democra editions, which I'm going to be putting out shortly. Uh, so look forward to that. Yeah, we wouldn't be able to talk about many of these games if it wasn't for the people who help us on Patreon. So thanks very much for that. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only, not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.